0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 17th, 2022. This is Andrew. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. I hope you're all well. We are slowly but surely, it seems, getting beyond COVID. Um, looking at the hotspot maps in the New York Times, we used to look at these a year or two ago every day for the show. We haven't been doing that many uh, recently. The global hot sh- uh, the, the global hotspots are going down. Global vaccinations are going up. And I guess in some senses, things seem to be getting slowly but surely back to normal. Uh, The headlines in The Times today is that COVID cases are dropping globally, but the Omicron subvariant is spreading. And the real issue now, I think, is access to vaccines. The Times had a photograph of um, a street scene in India where people are getting the vaccine. The issue is access to the vaccine and, of course, the cost of vaccine. Uh, More and more people are looking beyond uh, current vaccine access and trying to imagine a world where everyone has access to the vaccine. And uh, uh, the question, of course, is uh, how they will afford it. I'm quoting from a piece from Politico. Some wealthier countries are considering fourth doses of COVID vaccines for their citizens, while poorer countries don't have enough supply for a single dose per person. That, of course, is the reality of COVID uh, or of our post-COVID world. It was the reality of our pre-COVID world in terms of unequal access to vaccines, medicine. Uh, And that's the subject of our show today. We've done shows about the supposedly heroic nature of getting the vaccine. The the journalist, Brendan Burrell, was on the show. He's written a book, which I think is gonna get made into a movie. The inside story of Operation Warp Speed, treating it in a a heroic way, but things are more complicated. I also had the entrepreneur a couple of years ago, Ben Boyer, Silicon Valley guy, talking about the trade-offs we make in a post-vaccine world. The issue is of course of ownership of the vaccine, how we're going to pay for it, and indeed the very architecture of our uh, pharmacy, our big pharma economy. Uh, my guest today has written a book, not just about COVID, although of course there is a chapter in COVID uh, on COVID in the book, a, a book about monopoly medicine um, from aspirin to COVID-19 vaccines. It's entitled Owning the Sun. The author is Alexander Zajczyk, and Alex is joining us from uh, New Orleans. Alex, welcome. Um, Where are we with COVID? I know you had a piece recently suggesting that we're just going to have to live with it.
1: Well, you sketched things pretty well in your intro. We do seem to be in a a relatively good place compared to where we might have been Um, We're in a sort of downward slope in terms of cases and and deaths, even in the countries with with the highest rates. Um, But the lessons to be drawn from that, I think, um, you know, we have to be careful about uh, thinking that the issues raised around intellectual property and medicines are somehow behind us, because this was a kind of stress test for the, global IP system and and public health um, system in place, and it failed. It basically failed. There was no um, successful uh, diffusion of technology and cooperation on the scale that you would have imagined that we would see. So, Alex, what would
0: you say to somebody like, Brendan Burrell, I mean, I don't want to put words into his mouth and he's not here to represent himself, but he wrote a book about how heroic the uh, the inside story of the Operation Warp Speed uh, initiative was. It, it wasn't a book uh, praising Trump, but it was a book praising Big Pharma for reacting so quickly.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I mean... I, I'm not familiar with him or his book, but
0: uh, so I. that I, kind I, of argument, I don't want to pick up <laughs> Brendan. Yeah, I, I would a not kind choose an argument word. that suggests that um, under COVID, we saw science and big pharma at its best. It responded immediately, it took resources from government and basically saved millions of people's lives. Well,
1: it definitely took resources from government, but heroic is not the word I would, I would put on it. So, what word would you use? Early in the pandemic pharma basically threatened to take its ball and go home, Um, it was perfectly happy to sit out uh, the emergency, just like it sat out the first 10 years of HIV AIDS. Um, They made clear that unless they had complete control over the patents to result from this partnership with government, they were not interested. Um, in March 2020, Lloyd Doggett and a few other Democratic representatives tried to attach some very minimal price obligations, price requirements and social obligations to the first $8 billion tranche of warp speed, and they were basically crushed. And that's when pharma made clear that they write the rules or they're not playing at all. So if that's this guy's definition of heroism. Yeah, I,
0: I don't want to pick up a friend. Then. I'm yeah. Okay, he's a great
1: guy. But no, yeah. I, I don't think it was a heroic um
0: uh so, so let's okay yeah, Alex, let, let's stand industry. back and talk about the broader argument in your book because it's not just a book about covid but obviously people think of covid yeah. when we're thinking of monopoly medicine um your argument seems to be that um that there is a is a basic structural problem with the industry that ownership of uh medicine, what you call monopoly medicine, is essentially creating profound inequality and injustice in the world. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, but it's not just a question of the um, structure of the industry. It's it's a legal regime. Right. It's really, this exists at the pleasure of states and now the WTO, which is comprised uh, and enforced, uh, the the TRIPS regime enforced by the most powerful states that tend to produce the most valuable intellectual property.
0: Yeah, and I um, went to the WTO website because I knew you were gonna talk about it and I found a, a, a graphic of the global race to vaccinate which was incredibly complicated. Whenever they have these complicated uh, graphics, you assume they're trying to hide something.
1: Yeah, the story is really not that complicated. Um, you had a <laughs> a very urgent public health crisis. You had people doing research all over the world, which would have benefited from a common pool of knowledge and technology. Um, and that pool was created within the WTO. And companies uh, from the US and other leading vaccine nations were invited to participate. They all said no. They all chose their own lanes, their own path, um, to the detriment of both development and also diffusion and scale up around the world, as we're seeing right now with the rates you, you quoted at the beginning. Um, but uh, sorry, what was the first part of that?
0: Well, but let, let me come back on this, Alex. You know, I take your point, but isn't this capitalism? These companies are in the business of making money. So Moderna and Pfizer and J&J and all the others they are competing sure. to find a vaccine to make money. What's wrong with that?
1: Uh, well, that's not. The full story. I mean, of course they are. Of course that's what they do. But the government that funded the technology that we're now seeing applied was not an in-house product. It was funded by decades of federal investment in, in the case of vaccines, mRNA technology, the most effective vaccines. And Warp Speed, as we mentioned, was a U.S. government-led project and they were happy to take the money but usually there's something called uh shop rights and whoever's putting up the money or has done the work to create the the basis of the invention has some sort of legal claim uh and control of the product that results and in this case it was completely handed off to these companies who had very narrow interests in compared in comparison to the the global need for rapid scale up and and sharing of this technology and the resulting vaccines. So what would normally happen in the private sector, what you would call capitalism, this is just business, is actually not what happens in the case of these public-to-private conveyor belts, where the government that funds all this research just hands it off, and they don't make any stakes in how this technology is used. In
0: a funny way, Alex, this is similar to some of the arguments people make about big tech, is that the American government in particular, invested billions of dollars in building the internet. Um, and then the Apples and the Googles and the Microsofts and the Facebooks all took advantage of that, made enormous profits from that infrastructure, but didn't pay the government back. Is that a similar kind of argument you're making about big tech? No, uh, about big th- there, are,
1: there are absolutely parallels with um, high tech sector, yes. Um, and if there's a famous story of the opposite, happening in the 1950s where bell labs was squatting an enormous amount of ip that resulted from um government research and the justice department said this is not how the patent system is supposed to work this technology is supposed to be out there being used and they basically smashed the bell labs patent vault and and shared it with smaller companies they licensed it out widely and basically what resulted was high tech sector we know today solid transistor stuff lasers this all comes out of that justice department action um, so there used to be a much different understanding of this social contract between mm. yes you can patent certain things but you have to get the technology out there at some point and there's a larger sort of community interest that the patent system is supposed to serve and that is completely lost in the current system with regard to pharmaceuticals uh, and we saw that throughout the
0: entire pandemic. Let's be a little legal for a moment, because, uh, and, and you are very legal in, the, in your book in terms of defining your terms. Um, you make a distinction between patents and copyright. What do the big pharma companies own when it comes to the vaccines? Do they have patents? Do they have copyrights? What should they have in your mind and what shouldn't they? What's the problem legally here?
1: Right. Well, that's that's a very interesting question, and the story there occupies the last uh, chapter in the book. It used to be that when you got a patent, you sorry patent. Um, uh, you
0: say patent, yeah. I say yeah. Patent. What, we all it know what right?
1: It's, it's patent sounds good. Um, they used to have a claim on the product, and in exchange, they put all the information necessary to put the, the to create the product, manufacture it. In the patent and that is no longer the case because you have this entire universe of other forms of intellectual property uh most notably trade secrets which allows them to continue to conceal uh, the information needed to make the thing while they have the rights to uh exclusive exclusivity in the market so it, it kind of betrays the original purpose it used to be that the patent uh in pharmaceuticals was justified as well, a thing patented is a thing divulged. By getting the patent, you're putting the knowledge out there into the world, and it can be used when the patent expires in what used to be 17 and now 20 years. But in fact, they expand it to 50. Um, so this other world of IP, you mentioned copyright, trade secrets, know-how, I mean, they can pretty much hide whatever they want. And the laws have been changed mostly since the 1980s, and then they've been
0: absorbed into the WTO
1: Um so the
0: WTO is is a bad actor here. Is that because um, bureaucrats don't know what they're doing? Are they controlled by capitalists or by politicians? Oh, The, so the you know, WTO people... usually gets, especially when it came to Trump, it usually gets a reasonably good press, even amongst progressives.
1: Right. Well, I mean, it's a big organization that does a lot of things, but in the trips council which i focus on which is, handles ip they very much know what they're doing and it's uh, a body where the rules are pretty much made and enforced by the wealthiest countries it's not like the un which is a relatively democratic system um in fact it was created as a response to the fact that poor countries in the global south had such a say in the un system they had to move the forum for creating this new um, international system away from democracy into uh, a trade round. And out of the Uruguay trade round emerged the WTO, which was a place where uh, the US and its closest allies were able to impose this new um, intellectual property.
0: Uh, Alex, you're familiar with the, uh, the populist right in this country. Your last book was The Gilded Rage, A Wild Ride Through Donald Trump's America. You also wrote a book about uh, Glenn Beck. What would you say to perhaps a a Trump-style person who might come on and respond to you and say, look, why should America share its wealth? We invest. It's our companies that invest in in the vaccine. We want to sell it. Why should we give it to the global south? It's not our problem that they're poor.
1: Yeah, there's actually a very large... Uh, opportunity to have this conversation with what you might call the average Trump supporter, because as you may recall, Donald Trump campaigned on bending the pharmaceutical companies over the table. And uh, he said they were getting away with murder. He campaigned but For hard. his benefit,
0: not for the benefit of the global South.
1: No, but this is the opening because it's the same right. set of issues. I think, there. okay. okay. The, the pharmaceutical industry is hated uh, in, in this country uh, to a degree, it's completely unparalleled and has been for a long time. People support government negotiation with pharma and restricting their monopoly power by polls show up over 90%. I mean, there's nothing else like it in American politics. Um, now, you once you get people to understand that that monopoly power, which gouges them, which allows these companies to take billions in government funding, this huge subsidy, monopolize the product and price gouge them, it's the same thing happening at the global level and it's also undermining their own public health in an, ages, in an age of infectious pandemics, I think you could have a pretty productive conversation with a room, of, room full of Trump voters um, once you get a foot in the door on the larger issue of, of drug prices.
0: It's a really interesting argument, Alex. Uh, we had Eric Protzer on the show from Harvard who wrote a book about basically how progressives can hijack economic populism. And perhaps there's something in that. I am speaking with Alexander Zaitchik. He has a new book out, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19 uh, Vaccines. In many ways, it's a it's a follow-up to a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with John Abramson, uh, uh, who, who has also uh, written a very critical book about Big Pharma called Sickening. Uh, after the break, uh, Alex, I want to come back and I want to talk about the history, how we find ourselves in this situation and above all else, how we're going to fix it. So uh, we'll be back, everyone, in about 60 seconds to talk more with Alexander Zajic, uh about owning the sun and democratizing uh, big pharma, making making vaccine access fairer. Hold tight, everybody. Hi everyone, Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching, or even reading about this keen On show, I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my keen On show. The first of course is by in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio only podcast, you can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or Castbox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live, uh, and you can do the same, um, if we're connected, uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lit Hub YouTube page. So, whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keynote. We're back with Alexander Zaitchik, the author of Owning the Sun, brand-new book out about um, Big Pharma, about its monopolistic nature, a people's history of monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID-19 vaccines. Um, Alex, the narrative of your book is very similar to a lot of books that I deal with in this show. At the beginning, things had potential. We had the New Deal, which offered a way out, a way of, democratizing or socializing technology, wealth, and then everything went wrong in the age of neoliberalism. I know you're very critical in particular uh, of Bob Dole, who sometimes gets a reasonably good uh, press from progressives, but you suggest uh, in in an Intercept piece that there was the the great American science heist was this bail Dole Act which wrestled public science from the people's hands. When did the people begin to lose Big Pharma, Alex? Was it um, in the 40s or 50s?
1: Right. Well, the, the book begins in Renaissance Italy. And I think it's important to sort of very quickly bring bring things up to, to the modern period with the birth of the patent. Because the patent was basically a expression of Anger with overbearing royal power, where the the crown could enforce monopolies over all industries and trades. And there was a pushback in England by the Puritans in Parliament, and they basically reduced that to a patent on inventions. That's where we get the modern patent. And that was a carve out to a blanket ban on monopolies, otherwise banned. And within that exception within the invention exception there was another exception which lasted for hundreds of years and that was you can patent everything you want except products related to health and medicine and food uh, nutrition and you know the methods for making these things could be patented but not the products themselves because you know for a long time there weren't a lot of medicines that did much you know medicine is very crude. So if you found a way to make life less painful, uh, a little longer, and then you tried to, um, you know, control that you were considered, you know, pretty much evil incarnate, it was growing fat on human misery was the was the term for a long time. Um, And that lasted into the 20th century, which brings us up to the period you mentioned with the New Deal, where this conflict started to happen between the modern pharmaceutical industry, which actually learned its uh, lessons from the German companies, which came to the US uh, in the early 20th century and took advantage of the US patent system, which had a technical um, space for patenting medicines, which did not exist in Europe um, or anywhere else in the world. But Europe had the patent systems and medicines were not patentable. Um, So the Germans came to the US, they started doing it. And the US companies still had this, this ethical taboo against patenting medicines, but it, as they grew and as they became a part of the modern capitalist sort of research industry, uh, industrial economy, they said, wait, why don't we do this? That started to happen right around the time of the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And there is where you have the conflict between public control of public science and the birth of the modern research um, establishment under uh, what, what is now Health and Human Services and uh the industry which said no why can't we control this stuff you know it's it's our natural birthright to control um things that can be sold and, and marketed and they won that argument and that was a long argument it was very um winding and full of setbacks for both sides but uh you know, the result is, is where we are right now in
0: 2022. You, are, um, you, do- were, you did an interesting review of someone I've had on my guest, uh, Jason Hickel, has written uh. a book uh, about controlling capitalism and probably doesn't believe that capitalism really works as an economic system. Do you think reform of the, the system works within a capitalist structure in economic terms? Or do we need to get, as Hickel says, as so many other guests we've had on the show, Tim Jackson, for example, um, we have to get right. beyond capitalism to, to, right. to fix this problem with big pharma. Uh,
1: yeah, I love uh, Jason's book um, on, on degrowth, and I think that's somewhat of a separate issue. I mean, philosophically, I'm very sympathetic with with that argument, and I think yes, ultimately, if we're going to survive as a species, we're going to have to to get um, somewhere like that. But. In the context of right now, in the system that we have, it is not a question of capitalism. This is not a free market in pharmaceuticals that's the problem. It is a failure of the government to enforce laws that are already on the books related to social obligations and patents. There are, you know, uh, within Baiduil itself, within the... Right, so, it's so very
0: briefly, Alex, explain yeah. this dole Act Uh, When was it and why is it so important in your narrative?
1: 1963, right before Kennedy was assassinated, he issued a memorandum that basically gave the government default possession of inventions created with public funds, Um, pretty much making an Eisenhower-era policy much more strict. Industry did not like this. Industry thought that there should be a default position in favor of its control of all inventions resulting from partnerships with government, even if it was playing a very small role. Even if it was the junior partner, it thought that it should receive the fruits and profit from those fruits as they see fit um, on a monopoly basis. Between 1962 and 1979, that went back and forth um, and bills were written and scrapped. Long story short, in 1979, Birch Bayh, who's the main player here, not Bob Dole. Bob Dole came in later, and it was a Democrat. Only a Democrat could have gotten this done. Um, And Jimmy Carter signed it, shocked a lot of people, and it basically flipped the Kennedy policy inside out. And from then on, um, if there was a a public-private research partnership that produced something that could potentially be valuable, uh, the private sector partner had full control. And this was hypercharged during the Reagan years with a bunch of other laws, stevenson and Wilder being the most important. Um, and this was deepened under the Clinton era. And it's basically been deepened in little ways here and there ever since. And are current ongoing attempts to knock out the last little legal um, fine prints that connect The handing over of public science to social obligations. They're still there. They're not used, but the fact that they're still there drives industry nuts and they're trying to get rid of them.
0: So Alex, one very rich man, Bill Gates, claims he has a social obligation when it comes to the vaccines and of opening up technology and science to the less well-off. You've been quite critical of um, Bill Gates, particularly over vaccine distribution. Here's a a headline from the Hill just saying that journalist, which is you, criticizes Gates over vaccine distribution. Here's another piece that you wrote in the uh, in the New Republic: How Bill Gates impeded global access to COVID vaccines. Um, uh, you also wrote the grubby history of how vaccines became intellectual property. Is Gates? epitomizes what's gone wrong with the system, even though in a way his heart's in the right place, his head remains in traditional intellectual property regimes. Uh, Yeah, it's the one through line of his
1: entire career. It's a deep, profound uh, commitment to knowledge monopoly as a a concept and as the only possible driver of of innovation. Whether he actually believes that, who knows? Um, But that's certainly how he's conducted his business. And um, I don't know if his heart is in the right place, to be honest. Um, You know, I see the more that that you look at his role in public health, going back to um, the African AIDS crisis, where he first sort of uh, inserted himself in that world 20 years ago, 23 years ago, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that his role is basically to run interference for a system that had been completely discredited and was against the wall and it didn't know how to fight back. And then you had suddenly this third force emerge, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which changed the dynamic immediately and just by force of gravity because there was so much money being thrown around and it had the power to change the media narrative so quickly that suddenly the pressure was off industry and the demands that were being made, the global movement that had arisen to challenge this industry, was suddenly thrown off balance, and it's never really regained that balance. Although, in in some ways, in the last couple of years, you've seen it exert itself again. Um, but I, I don't I know if Gates is really committed to anything other than his own power and reputation laundering in the wake of the antitrust hearings in the late 90s, which is when he pivoted to being Mr. Global Health. And if you look at what he's doing in green tech, agriculture it's the same stuff um you know he's just hoarding ip he's claiming to do it in the name of progress it's the microsoft
0: model i I want to come to that in a minute but you mentioned aids and technology we had emily bass on the show last year she wrote a book uh, entitled to end the plague america's fight to defeat aids in africa and it's a it's, it's quite a sympathetic book about the um the fight against aids what's your take on the aids story in in the context of owning the sun uh i am not familiar with that book but yeah it and is... again i don't want you to comment on books you're not familiar yeah. with but uh, but, it, but it was just an entry point to talking about aids i mean
1: that that chapter is is fascinating and in in many ways is the prequel to the vaccine story of covid-19 um you had Uh, breakthrough uh, inventions. You had the antiretrovirals that were effective um, and the companies did not want to relinquish the knowledge needed to make them or the legal right to make them. As you know, they got together to sue the government of Nelson Mandela um, so that he could not produce them cheaply for his people, which who were contracting HIV at at an alarming rate. And, you know, uh, it took the United States government many many decades to um threaten sanctions against apartheid south africa it took very few years to threaten sanctions against the mandela regime for th- threatening the new wto trips system uh which is quite revealing and it was a shameful episode on the part of the us government and the western governments which also backed their pharmaceutical champions um and it's the story of heroes the, the indian who basically came out with to the world through Donald McNeil, the New York Times, and said, I can make this stuff for pennies, and I will sell it for pennies, try and stop me. And that was what broke it wide open. And the pharmaceutical companies, long story short, ended up having to climb down.
0: Alex, what are we going to do about this? I mean, in a, apart from reforming the very perhaps in a sanctum of, of capitalism, uh, one piece I read in Nature and editorial is, is the need for a patent waiver on COVID vaccines. Are you in favor of that? Might that be a, a compromise way, uh, way forward, patent waivers on global pandemics?
1: It's better than nothing. I mean, it would have to involve other forms of intellectual property, as we discussed, just... Waving patents alone wouldn't, wouldn't do it because it's so much um, about know-how and, and uh, trade secrets when it comes to very difficult, uh, complex technologies like mRNA, although the South African project is making headway in figuring out how to reverse engineer it. Um, so the waiver, you know, it's better than nothing, but what should have happened was the COVID-19 uh, technology access pool uh, established within the World Health Organization that should have been backed and supported by the major countries and those major countries who were providing uh, government money for their pharmacy, pharmaceutical champions should have written into the contracts, starting with warp speed, you have to participate in CTAP. You have to share your technology. We're paying for it. You have to. Uh, we have to scale it up and we have to license it widely, which is what we used to do. We did it with penicillin during World War II. Um, so it's not like there wasn't a, a precedent for this.
0: Alex, I compared... Um the situation with big pharma and big tech. Um, You've been very critical of Bill Gates and and indeed Microsoft for their attitude towards patents and IP. The Silicon Valley response was to fetishize free. Uh, Chris Anderson, for example, the former editor of Wired magazine, uh, wrote a book, Free, the Future of a Radical Price. Lots of others, Larry Lessig, a lot of other tech insiders and idealists believe that the way and and Microsoft was vilified, we had the free economy of Google and Facebook, the Web 2.0 economy, which has resulted in surveillance capitalism. Is there a danger with the ideology of free? I'm not suggesting that you are part of Anderson's movement, but is there a danger of responding too violently, aggressively against ownership of IP in big pharma, given what's happened in big tech?
1: Um, I'm not sure what the threats would be, but to be clear I don't think anyone's arguing that the products themselves should be free and that the private sector should be unable to turn a reasonable profit making these things, which they've always done, even when the government has uh, maintained a self-respecting patent policy. It's more the, the knowledge, especially during a public health crisis, of which there will be more and possibly a much more high fatality virus in the future. That knowledge we cannot protect with business-as-usual methods. And the governments of the world should do everything in their power to get that information out there as much as possible. And if they want to contract with a company at twice cost of production, a cost-plus contract, fine. You know, let Pfizer make $100 million. But there's no reason to be minting billionaires left and right while 200 vaccine factories sit idle during a pandemic and this again i think we need to think of this as a warm-up and a stress test on the system because the next one we may not have the luxury of so much time
0: and the death count may be much much higher alex stand back and think about this in the context of the general crisis of american health care um as i said uh, john abramson was on the show recently he actually um suggested your book at the end of the show, suggesting everyone alongside his book, Sickening How Big Pharma Broke American Healthcare and How We Can Repair It, suggested needed to read uh, your new book, Owning the Sun. Uh, we've also had shows about, all sorts of shows, about the crisis of the American healthcare system, including Robert Pearl, about the culture of medicine being the problem. It's killing not just patients, but also doctors. We had Tom Hartman on the show, The Shameful History of American Healthcare. How do the reforms of big pharma and IP connect with changing American healthcare in a broader sense, which is clearly broken?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, let me return the favor and recommend John's book in turn, which is fantastic. Um, And he shows how the industry controls crucial information um, related to, especially related to trials um, that should be shared publicly, but is not. And it's, it's a similar issue with IP um, in, in patents where the information is supposed to be divulged in the patent, but is not. Um, they're allowed to protect as much information as they want to allow them to protect their market share. And um, it, you know it, it's a similar problem. And that you could argue that it starts with, with the monopoly grants. Um, you know, uh, it incentivizes this kind of behavior across the board and a much more competition-based policy in pharmaceuticals like you see in other areas of the economy would, would benefit public health, um, and also the economy because we wouldn't be deforming our, our budgets by paying these outrageous, um, amounts that no other government in the world would, would even consider paying to these companies. Uh, Do the but it's doctors a big...
0: hate the system as well as as as, as critics like yourself. I'm sorry. Do the doctors. I mean, if a doctor, and I'm not sure if there's such a thing as a typical doctor.
1: Right. But if yeah. there
0: was, and they picked up your book, owning the son of people's history of monopoly medicine from aspirin to COVID nineteen vaccines, what would a regular doctor think of this? Where are they in this in in, in this complicated, uh, broken down system?
1: That, that's a great question. And I, I, John goes into that a bit. Um, and the history of that relationship between organized medicine, family physicians, and the drug companies uh, is a big part of my book. It's one of the, the, the running themes. And the drug industry has been extremely careful and conscious and smart about cultivating one organized medicine through the AMA and family doctors through personal relationships. I mean, much of what The industry spends its money on is so-called detail men and women, these people who just go around to family uh, doctor's offices with little satchels and pamphlets and and prey upon the fact that doctors are very busy, they don't have time to read, you know, a million articles about something and You know, they're human beings, they're susceptible to perks, and those perks are doled out in Congress as well as in hospitals and uh, doctor's offices, and um, that relationship is a tricky one. Uh, I do think that a lot of doctors would be surprised to learn that medicine used to be adamantly against um, the monopolization of medicine and that you could not even prescribe a drug that had a patent on it until the 20th century it was considered unethical. If you were a doctor, you could not be involved in industry partnerships. You could not put a monopoly on a health product. You were just absolutely cast out of the guilt and you were excoriated as someone who
0: had no business claiming to be in the profession of medicine. So perhaps Alex, and this is for another conversation, Uh, this is something that needs to be included in a new kind of economic progressive populism. It's a piece of the conversation. It's not the thing in itself, but it it cuts across the board from big tech in digital technology to healthcare to big pharma, probably also into the defence industry. It's a particularly interesting and I think important conversation. Uh, And Alex, uh, your new book, Owning the Sun: A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19 Vaccines, it's a really important uh, contribution. It's just out. It's a central reading, I think, for anyone who cares about this stuff. Uh, Alex, what else should people be reading in mid-February 2022 in addition to Owning the Sun? You've already suggested uh, people should also read uh, John Abramson's Sickening. Um,
1: when I finished this project, the first book I reached for, I really, it, really needed to read a novel. Uh, and I reread Bridge on the Drina by Ivo Andrich, ah. um, which is, it reminded me just how utterly amazing it is. Uh, it's about the well, Serbian Bosnian,
0: greatest uh, writer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that comes to mind. Um, I'm also about to start reading. Is that where book. your
0: family is originally from?
1: Uh, no, they're from what is now Belarus.
0: Okay.
1: Minsk. What used to be called the Pale.
0: Good, well that's the first time anyone's ever suggested Bridge uh, on the Drina, but that, that's a very good suggestion. Anything else, Alex?
1: Um, I haven't started it yet, but I just got a memoir by Sterling Hayden, which I'm really looking forward to reading, the,
0: the great actor uh, who played Jack Ripper and Dr. Strangelove. Good, Alex, well take a rest, you deserve it after all the effort you've put into this Thank book, you. well done. Um, and finally, uh, I'm, I'm asking this of all my guests now, uh, Alexander Zajczyk, uh, author of Owning the Sun. Who runs the world, Alex?
1: That's a great question. I'm going to take a slightly optimistic uh, tack on that and say, whoever puts the time in to organize around what they think is important will end up uh,
0: running the world. Now do we put the time in, Alex? How do
1: we put the time in? <laughs> uh, you know, that, that one doesn't change. It's uh, pushing the ball up the hill, doing doing work that's that's not fun and can seem not very um, effective at the time. But, uh, you know, you got to do it. Um, and uh, it's just it's just the grind. I mean, we've seen in U.S. politics that what we have now in the infrastructure bill related to drug pricing is a result of dogged organizing on the part of patient groups and, and insul- people buying insulin and you know can't afford their medicines. They've been this didn't just like pop out of nowhere. I mean, there was a great resistance to this, but mm-hmm. but there's been organizing happening around the country for years that have forced this onto the agenda. We'll keep uh, uh, keep pushing that
0: ball up the hill. It's a Sisyphean task, I think, in a sense, but we need guys like you, journalists willing to tell the truth. Alexander Zaitchik, author of Owning the Sun. Congratulations on the new book. And um, uh, we will look forward to talking more. This is an enormously important and complicated subject. I'm sure we'll have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much.
1: Great. Thank you.